Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends, and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom and KJ. Great to have you back, as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Roxanne. Thanks for joining us today, Roxanne. Roxanne and Tom are dating. Roxanne is quite familiar with Jane Austen and her works, but we are discussing Marie Antoinette today. Roxanne also conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by Tom. This week, we'll be jumping into 2006 biography, drama, history, Marie Antoinette. Directed by Sofia Coppola, also known for The Virgin Suicides, The Beguiled, and Lost in Translation. Other movies that would have been in theaters with Marie Antoinette include The Happy Feet, Pan's Labyrinth, Casino Royale, and The Santa Claus 3, The Escape Clause. Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about this movie and why this would be a a fun one for us to uh, discuss today. Thanks, Nick. So the plot of this movie is exactly what you think it is. It starts with... Um, Marie Antoinette waking up in her Austrian home, age 14, going off to France to be married um, to Louis Auguste, who was later crowned Louis XVI. And it, the, some of the initial conflicts she has to deal with are um, sleeping and getting pregnant by her husband, something they have trouble doing since they are 15 and 14 years old, um, dealing with a court that's at times hostile to an Austrian or even just hostile to an outsider or hostile to someone who appears not to be uh, doing her duty as a wife. Um, It is also about her response to this hostility, her ability to kind of uh, seize decorative pleasures, to, to become a fashion icon, to embrace the soft and the beautiful all around her and transcend these troubles. And it ends with her leaving Versailles as the French Revolution is breaking out and this world of glitz and glamor and beauty finally coming to an end. One of the reasons I selected this is, um, I, I won't say this is a, a brilliant movie or a genius movie in the tradition of a lot of the films we've been watching, right? It's not, it's not Night of the Hunter or M, but it is, an incredibly beautiful film. And it celebrates uh, uh, celebrates decadence and it celebrates excess. And that's why I really liked it. It's over the top, it's too much, and it loves being too much. And it recognizes fashion not as an aspect of shallowness or, or some crap like that, but as you know, an artwork that, um, that can kind of fill up these these kind of uh, cultural traditions or these practices that otherwise m- we might find empty. KJ, I'll send it to you. What are your thoughts? So this movie had been in my Netflix watch list for a while, but I never quite hit the play button. So I was really excited we were doing it for uh, Talking Pictures Trivia. Um, uh, anything I've seen, uh, Kirsten Dunson has been great. She's been great in it. I, I've I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, maybe the Spider-Man, but yeah, she's been really good in almost anything. Um, I didn't realize this was by Sofia Coppola. Um, that was kind of a pleasant surprise. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this movie. I'm a sucker for biopics and historical biopics. So 
I, I love seeing people's interpretation of historical figures' lives. And I think Sophia Coppola did great with it. Um, the soundtrack was a little strange, um, but the colors, the sets, the dresses, the, the costumes, the makeup, the, I, mean, I mean, everything, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but the only thing I'm a little nervous about is this is a movie that I don't think I'll ever remember the details. I feel like it's a movie you could watch over and over and over again because the, the details of the movie weren't that important. It, it was really just the look and the feel. So I'm a little nervous about the questions tonight because I don't know how many of these I'm going to get. Um, I got to keep my reputation up here. How about you, Nick? How'd you feel about the movie? Yeah, I have some thoughts about this movie. And, and before I share them, I, I actually just wanted to uh, speak about one of the things Tom brought up about their ages. And I think this movie did not really showcase that well enough. I knew that she was young. I did not realize how young uh, King Louis XVI was uh, based on the portrayal of this film. So that makes some sense out of some of my challenges with this movie but I guess I'll go right into it. So to begin with, I'm always wary of historical pieces that embrace modern themes and music, but fortunately, I, I thought it was actually gonna be a larger offender than it was. Um, one of my examples of a movie that I don't particularly like how much they go into that is uh, the movie with Heath Ledger, A Knight's Tale. They really lay on bringing modern times into medieval times. I thought this was gonna be something to that degree and they did have elements of it, with them, which I'm sure we're going to discuss, but it wasn't as much as I feared. The other part of this film, and talking about how everything looked and felt and all the different uh, decadence and all of that, we really spent the first hour and 20 minutes of this film figuring out if the characters portrayed by Jason Schwartzman and Kirsten Dunst would consummate their marriage. Okay, it took a lot of time for us to get to this point. And then we got into some interesting elements, or at least in my opinion. I thought there was going to be more historical references involved in this movie. They kind of were part of a, a loose background to what was going on in their lives. And really, those were my favorite parts. Just like KJ said about the biopics, the historical part, I thought this was going to have more of that in this. And it was really not the main event of this movie. And I understand that may not have been the purpose of it, but I think that's what I was looking for when I went into this experience. I will say, similar to going back to what KJ says, I, I enjoyed the performances. I thought the actors were spot on. I thought all of that dialogue was good, but I just felt the overall film fell short of what I expected to be. It's not that it was bad, it's not great, but it's not something I would necessarily recommend unless it was a very unique audience. Uh, Roxanne, what were your initial thoughts? Yeah, uh, first of all, thanks for having me guys. This is great. Um, but uh, so this movie is, is one that I saw when it first came out in theaters. Um, I must have been like 15 or 16. Um, I actually haven't seen it in a while. Um, so revisiting this movie after, after a few years was really interesting. Um, and I remember kind of all the reasons why I originally was really drawn to the movie, um, which is to say the, like, the luscious costumes. Um, around the time when I first started see when I first saw this movie was uh, when I was just getting really into period dramas. Um, and that's like what I talk about a lot in my own like academic career is, is that vein of things now, or at least that's a significant part of it. Um, and I actually didn't really kind of put that together until today. 
But this is one of those movies that kind of just began in general. And I, I had always also enjoyed things that uh, Kirsten Dunst had been in. Um, and it was definitely something that was different from the usual fare that I had seen up to that point, right? Like, like what you said with the soundtrack, uh, that kind of thing. Um, I thought it was kind of bizarre in a, in, in a fun way. Um, and I think if you think about some of the stuff that was also coming around, not even just that year, but in the years surrounding that, when I kind of place it, because I was in high school at the time, and some of the the films that were coming out around that time have this, this same kind of quirky vibe that was very, um, I guess, cool to like in some regard. Like uh, Juno, I think it came out the next year. Um, and Across the Universe also came out, uh, I think the next year or the year after that. Um, but even though they're all very different films, they kind of have these soundtrack heavy, very quirky, very um, sometimes, at least maybe in, in Across the Universe a little bit like this, uh, a little bit of like nihilism um, and hedonism thing going on uh, that I think that that I guess it, all of those things kind of come together for me when I think about this, this particular film. And then also I, I love the, the history surrounding uh, the French Revolution, Marie Antoinette as well, and I was always big into that. Uh, so yeah, so this kind of hits a lot of, of different buttons for me, I think, as a movie. Great. And I, I'm sure we're going to explore a lot of those elements uh, throughout these questions. But before we get into those questions, we have a critical question for you. What snack do you recommend enjoying while watching Marie Antoinette? This is easy. Um, you would want to get a full sleeve of macarons um, and a big bottle of champagne, preferably to yourself. That makes sense. And I love when they're up in the club, you know, <laughs> with all the champagne pouring. So uh, very interesting times. I think that's a perfect choice. It's time for Movie Quiz. Here we go for round one. Now here are the rules. Each question in round one is worth one point. There are two alternative questions for round one, and there's an added little wrinkle. You can either select an alternative question and just go for the points, or you can target someone and try to take those points from another person. However, if you lose, you lose those points and they go to the person you targeted. So those are your options, the question, the alternative, or the target. I am going to let Roxanne pick as our esteemed guest, and here are the categories. Round one takes place at Versailles. The categories are robe à la polonaise, robe à la levite, robe à panier. I'm going to go with robe à la panier. Um, and before I ask the question, does anybody want to jump in with an alternative or with a target? I, I think I'll risk the first one being the the, the actual question. And we'll, we'll, yeah, when we get desperate, we'll start handing out points, I imagine. I was trying to take Tom's points from last week, but, you know. <laughs> All right, here we go. It's time for question one. What custom does Marie Antoinette introduce into France that appears to be initially popular but by the end of the film, has lost its purchase on the crowd. Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. Okay, so since KJ, you answered last, you have to go first. What do you have? Uh, Mar 
Marie Antoinette introduces clapping um, either during or at the end of a show, which, um, yeah, I guess everybody kind of enjoys, but by the end, she loses favor. Um, so they don't want to clap anymore for the, for the people, the clapping. Right. Thank you. Roxanne, you locked in second. So what do you have? I, too, uh, was going to say clapping. She begins clapping uh, at the end of an opera. And then at the end, that doesn't work out so well anymore. All right. Thank you. And Nick, our speedy lock-in, what do you have? Yes, it's the applause and appreciation for the performance. Okay. And that is a point to everyone. Well done, team. Uh, so the reason I, I bring this question here is I'm interested in the uh, effect she has on this kind of aristocratic courtly world and you know how that's measured or how that's changing over time um, and what you guys thought of that what did you think of her in terms of how uh, how she embraces or neglects her responsibilities vis-a-vis -vis that position of the you know female leader of france the trendsetter in france I'm glad you used the word embrace. So this is a minor item, but one of the things that I remember from this movie is everyone there is in France, once she crosses the border is super stuffy, okay? They, they have all their protocols and whatnot. And what does she do? She's a hugger, okay? She goes big up and gives a big hug. That is not the protocol. So I just thought that was interesting. I'm not saying that everyone started going around hugging, but already we see that she is possibly a trendsetter or acts a little differently than they're accustomed to. So I thought that was an interesting introduction and to, uh, to the things to come. Yeah. So um, that scene that you mentioned when she's um, when she's like crossing the border, right? That entire scene is like as historically accurate as they can make it. Like all of that stuff happened. They took away her dog. Um, they stripped her naked that it was, you know, the uh, it was as it was as historically accurate as they can co could completely make it um and what i think is interesting is like you see her coming into um the world of france and everybody's like pushing on her it's like you're gonna be like this this is how you're gonna dress this is the dog you're gonna have these are the people you're gonna gonna hang out with and then you see her as she kind of faces more trials especially in terms of um you know her kids and that kind of thing and realizing that she has to survive in some way, she um, starts to have her own impact in, in other areas, I guess, right? Um, and she starts putting her own impression on France, um, which obviously is met at first, you know, with some level of hostility. Um, but seeing her do that, uh, I thought was, I thought was a really interesting kind of juxtaposition there. Another part of the movie where they explore that further is later when the husband, uh, the king, gives her her own place to live, like her own retreat, if you will. I mean, it's a pretty magnificent retreat. And there's a certain scene where one of the royals say, hey, this lady needs to be invited here. And she's like, this is where I go to stay away from all of that you know, nonsense, all of the protocol. That was her escape. And she found a way to still do it within her parameters. But when she couldn't change them, she changed her location to live the way she wanted to live. Yeah, that estate was, was interesting because I think a lot of times with these films and with fiction, when, when you take a whole person's life and you, and you boil it down to two hours, you, you need to leave a lot of stuff out. 
which makes me think we need to infer some stuff that may not have made it to the film. Um, and, and one of the things I was thinking is they have that whole estate for her, which seems like it's to give her a place where she doesn't have to be proper and French. But I also wondered how much was she influencing France? So it gave her, it, it gave France a place to be protected from her influence on France, right? Did she upset the status quo enough that they're like, you know what, let's get her out of the public eye. Um, and I don't know, I've, I've not, I, I know nothing about Marie Antoinette except maybe, you know, her famous quote, but um, I was also wondering if that was a two-way street. It wasn't just a place for her to have a retreat. It was a place to stop her from influencing and radicalizing uh, France. Well, I, I mean, I don't think she's radicalizing France. She seems to, to meet, I, I wouldn't even say she meets them halfway. I think she embraces her role. She just finds- I was gonna say, Tom, I think France was radicalizing around her. <laughs> yeah, well, they're radicalizing in opposition to her, certainly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think she's she's embracing her role, but also trying to find pockets of freedom within that role. I don't think it's necessarily like she's the the changes she makes to the to to the court life or whatnot, like applauding at the opera. Um, they're they're temporary and they're not particularly major. They're a little bit of authority that she is able to generate. Um, the, you know, the fact that she had she was able to set a sort of uh, a, a kind of a code of of what you wore. Um, I mumbled my words there. That you know, she set a kind of fashion standard at um, her her home in the country. Petite Trianon is also uh, reflexive of that. The fact that she's able to, to find these little little pockets of freedom, and that did have an influence. Right, people started dressing in a particular fashion to reflect that. But I think what the movie shows you isn't her dominating France. It's about decadence as temporary liberation, but always temporary. I also think, Tom, not just decadence, but almost indifference. There's only a few scenes where they were like, oh, I need to, oh, I, okay, I got a good example for it. She wanted giant oak trees put up and she's been spending all this money and the person says to her pretty much, oh, you spent all your money, you can't, you know, give money to your few charities. And she's like, oh, well, maybe I can beg the king for some more money. So it wasn't really on the top of her list uh, for the country, at least within the confines of the movie. The, they didn't really show that she was uh, a, a woman of the people or anything like that. It was just at some points just kind of to appease. And that's what I meant by indifference. Yeah, I think that that's a, an, a really interesting part about the, the movie too is that it's, they just are, it, the film almost could have been called Versailles um, because it's so much just about what's going on in Versailles as this bubble where like nothing really ever comes in or goes out just like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. She's indifferent because she doesn't know. Like um, she's not in touch with the real world. She's kind of in this bubble of Versailles and she's kind of supposed to be kept that way. Um, and she was also massively undereducated and they don't maybe make as much of a point about that maybe in the movie as, as they, as is the historical case, but like she, it's not that she wasn't smart, but like she completely breezed by in her education and that like she didn't really have one because she was one of the youngest daughters um, at court. So like nobody paid attention to her. 
Um, so I almost wonder too, if she um, didn't have a lot of the uh, skills, I suppose, to kind of be aware of, of what's kind of going on around you. So when somebody's like, you know, you don't have all this money for this stuff, like it doesn't matter. It's like, well, money, what, since when do I have to think about money? Like, just give me my trees. Yeah. And the whole thing too. I mean, sometimes I use the word elude. It was pretty obvious that they were just showcasing her as like the, the, the naive rich person who can go party all night and come home and life is just there to entertain her. So it, they, it, the movie was very thick on that mentality, you know, presenting Marie Antoinette. So what else would you expect her to do given the information she has in the world she's in? Right. How else would you expect a person who's lived this life and really has no, not a lot of contact out of her side and whose life is incredibly regulated, despite the, you know, the party she gets to go to, to, to do in response to um, money problems or, oh, the, the peasants don't have bread. These are, these are not things that this person is, is trained to do, you know, especially when she's either a teenager or, you know, sometime in her 20s. Um, and it, it's interesting to talk about, Roxanne, your point about this could have just been called Versailles is pretty spot on. If you uh, see the scenes where people start revolting, um, in the initial shots, it's just shots of Versailles with kind of the sound of crowds being piped in. So you don't even see until very late in the film um, the outside world touching Versailles until basically she's she's pulled out of there at the very end of the film. You don't even see that outside conflict. The, the way it's filmed, it, it is absent. All it is is a sound in the distance. You also don't see the ramifications of their actions in this film too. The historical ramifications, which is interesting. Are we ready for question number two? This one goes to Nick. Nick, would you like robe à la polonaise or robe à la levite? I'm going to go with the Levite one. And before I ask the question, would anybody like to grab an alternative? Remember, alternatives are worth, worth more points, too. So you would be able to get more points. I'll, I'll do an alternative. Um, I know one of our, well, I hope he listens. Pat Gavin <laughs> out there would like to hear it. So I will do the alternative question. I, I'll, I'll be tribute. Okay. No so diegetic questions, though. Might be. There is no diegetic questions in this uh, game. Then it's not really an alternative. Are they all diegetic? <laughs> I guess they're all diegetic. There's no non-diegetic Light motifs? Um, <laughs> uh, no, there's no light motifs either. It's time for a light motif. <laughs> <laughs> the, the anybody else want an alternative? You could either go for two or three points, KJ. Oh, let's, go for, um, let's go for three points. Um, and I'd, I'd like to try out the targeting system, and I'd like to target Nick Louise. No, like you can't take Nick. alternative and target. Yeah, that's how target. That's how target works. Ah, Stay on target. Okay. Uh, Roxanne, do you want a traditional question or an alternative or a target? Uh, alternative. The three point question is going to be asked. KJ is targeting Nick. Roxanne is not targeting anyone. Wait, I didn't say what I'm. You doing. just said you said you want to do. Um, do, do you want to change your mind? I didn't know I was getting targeted. <laughs> would you like to change from? Um, I would like to take an alternative and target. Great. Would you well, like? Hang on. Wait, wait. This <laughs> this breaks the Pat Gavin rule. <laughs> then I I would like to remain a target, but I'd like to go back to the regular question so we don't miss it. Okay. 
Fair enough. <laughs> okay, fine, fine. I won't, I won't, I won't, mm. I won't rock okay. the boat. I'll stick with my original, uh, if it, my if it original helped, normal Nick, question. if it helps you feel better, he's not going to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm yes. happy to be here, so whatever. <laughs> I won't rock the boat. So I, I, I'll lock in with my original okay. lock in. <laughs> Great. So we'll start with Nick's question. It's time for question two. What is the one thing Marie Antoinette says to the Comtesse du Barry. She is the woman who is um, the mistress of Louis XV. So take a few minutes there, and then I'm going to ask uh, KJ and Roxanne. Here is alternative question two. The, the question, by the way, is called Robe à l'Orientale, which I just screwed up, but whatever. Here's the question. Before being crowned Queen of France, Marie Antoinette's two titles are what? Locked in. I'm locked in. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm locked in. <laughs> All right, KJ, you answered last. So I'm rooting for you, KJ. What are her two titles? <laughs> All right. So her 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 two titles, um, the here we go. The Duchess of Austria. I'm pretty sure she was from Austria. And um the keeper of Muggsy were her two titles. <laughs> Okay, that's an answer. All right, uh, Nick, you locked in second. So what do you have? I hope it could be in the spirit of the phrase. I think it was something about the weather in Versailles. Okay. Thank Ooh, you. Can I, can I um, since, since I targeted Nick and I'm at a pretty big risk for losing a lot of points here, if mm -hmm. I can answer I his question, is there any? No, oh, no, that's not no, okay, no, okay, no, okay. no, no, no. Okay. Um, and Roxanne, what do you have? So Marie Antoinette, or Marie Antonia, um, was the Archduchess of something, um, and she was also the Dauphine of France. So before you announce the points, can I answer Nick's question? You can. I, I'm pretty sure she said, there's a lot of people here, which is something I say all the time. Anytime yep. there's more than like four that's, people. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was... Uh, but I still get you your You still points. get his points. <laughs> <laughs> right, so you get you get three points. Uh, KJ loses three points, so he's at negative two. And Roxanne gains three points for answering the question. She's the Archduchess and the Dauphine. Neat. Neat. Um, and so that puts us at... Uh, Roxanne has four points. Nick has four points. And KJ has negative two. <laughs> Thanks, KJ. I'm going to be handing these out all night. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, and we covered a little bit of what I want to talk about in this, this question, which was um, uh, that kind of opening scene, that, which you discussed, Roxanne, in a little more detail. Uh, and, and the, the um, her position in the court and what she's kind of responsible for doing is manifest right away. Um, but let's talk about the relationship in the court and how she kind of manages these different characters, right? Um, we know Comtesse du Barry is, um, she's Louis XV's mistress. He's probably bought the title for her. That's the rumor in the court. Uh, and she's portrayed as this kind of like New York up-and-comer, you know what I mean? Like a, a, a upward mobile, upwardly mobile person in the court. Um, and I was wondering what people thought about her and how that, the, the court sociology, for lack of a better word, is, is structured and portrayed. 
I really enjoy um, the the casting for that. Oh, I can't remember the actress's name, um, but the the this casting in which she's got you know a very thick and honestly, I'm not really sure which particular area if it's like New York or New Jersey or what exactly it is. Um, I'm from Illinois, so you'd have to help a lady out. Um, but I thought that was an interesting take um, on that character, since she's supposed to be basically a prostitute made mistress. Um, and then how how are you supposed to get somebody who is the daughter of the the Empress of, of Austria to um, acknowledge this woman who has come up, um, who was a prostitute um, and is now the mistress of the king. And you have to acknowledge her when you have spent most of your life never paying attention to anybody really of that rank. I also thought it was interesting where you just see their customs and the other lady who you're talking about, right, the mistress, she, she can walk right by her, but she cannot address her first. Marie Antoinette has to start the dialogue for it to be proper, which was quite interesting just to see the layers of not even politics, but just procedure uh, that occurs in Versailles and in, in France at that time. It's, it's, it was kind of crazy to me. Yeah, I, I love those kind of rules um, in a, in a well, I should say, I don't love those rules in an actual society. I wouldn't want to have to live <laughs> by them or adhere to them. But in either fiction or I guess uh, is this historical fiction? I don't, I don't know exactly what you'd call it. Um, but one of the things while I was watching this show uh, reminded me a lot of Game of Thrones. Hopefully I don't get too many jeers here for um, bringing up Game of Thrones instead of an actual uh, historical reference. Um, but in Game of Thrones, you, you have um, similar situations. Uh, they don't appear on screen and not really in the book, but Tywin's father um, had a very similar situation to Louis the Fifteenth uh, with the mistress, and it plays a big role. Doesn't matter. Um, but other historical fiction I've read, uh, particularly some stuff in Japan, um, like the book Shogun, a lot of what makes it interesting is what society accepts and doesn't accept, and rules you have to follow, similar to who can talk to each other first. And once you do talk, what are the ramifications? What's said is usually important. In this movie, it didn't actually seem too important what Marie said to the mistress. Um, but but it does make for a very fun and, and dramatic situation, usually. I'm really glad you brought up Game of Thrones because it actually came to mind for a different topic. Uh, Tom asked earlier, what would you expect Marie Antoinette to be like? And there is a character called Marjorie Tyrell, who is a princess of the people and reaches out to the poor and all that. That is, of course, an idealized version of what a young you know uh princess could be and i know there's a reason that's fiction and she does it for purpose too even within the story of game of thrones but even on another note the different procedures and all that it actually did make me think a lot of that not the rest of it of course but just the fact that there was this hierarchy there were greater families. There were different ways to present and titles. And again, that's where all this fiction comes from, is this in other medieval sources. But I actually did, my mind did go to the Game of Thrones direction as comparison for those two elements. Let's do this. Let's promise this is the end of the Game of Thrones conversation because I love Game of Thrones. But um, yeah. yes, Marjorie Tyrell, Absolutely. But also aspects of Sansa's story, being stuck in another castle, so to say, in a foreign land and trying to deal with that. And even Cersei's walk 
um, of shame kind of reminded me of what Marie Antoinette eventually had to to go through. So I feel like there's pieces of Marie Antoinette and a lot of the princesses and queens in um, A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, but but Nick, let's 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 promise that. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. No, no, you okay. don't have to go there. I just wanted to touch <laughs> touch upon it because you went there. I opened the floodgates. I think uh, a lot for me is what I liked about this movie, or what it traced for me, was her maturation, which I think is marked by by many things. But one of them is her uh, her ability to kind of change associations right and so with uh, and change associations is sort of her way of of managing the court at least as well as she can um and you know the, the dubarry is the dubarry I, I i'm pretending like i could pronounce french but uh, the, the dubarry episode is you know kind of an example of one of these uh, court behaviors she goes into another one though is at the beginning of the movie she's sort of stuck with these two aunties um, yeah, played by Molly Shannon and um, Shirley Henderson. That's right. Uh, Sophie and Victoria. Throughout the movie, she then moves uh, associations from them to uh, Rose Byrne's character, the, the Duchess de Polignac. Polignac. Polignac? Okay, Polignac. Um, Polognac. Polognac. Yeah, the Duchess <laughs> Polognac. <laughs> She's really great. She's quite a dresser, Palagnac is. But, uh, and, and the ability for her to um, bring in and shape her world using the associations she wants, which we learn maybe not be, may not be the best for her, but they allow her the escape into decadence that she needs. And Rose Byrne's character was the closest to a rebel within French society. And of course, she was attracted to that right away. Yeah, apparently uh, Rose Byrne's character, the Duchess de Polignac, was supposed to be like super pretty, um, which solid casting with uh, Rose Byrne. Um, but that was also part of the, it's just like a court full of hotties, um, just kind of traipsing around with each other. All right, shall we get into question number three? KJ, give me some points. Here they come. <laughs> All right, there is a two-point alternative question still available if anybody wants to take it or target with it. Is anybody taking it? If nobody's taking it, I got to pat Gavin this. I'll, I'll take it. So Roxanne's taking it? No, no, no. I was going to say I'm, I'm going to stay with the regular question, okay. so... So, Roxanne, you're taking the two. Do you want to target or just go for two points? I think I just want to go for two points. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Now I'll stick with the, the regular question. It's time for question three. During her first morning after her marriage, Marie Antoinette is introduced to a custom she finds ridiculous. What is that custom? And now for Roxanne, your alternative question. Marie Antoinette and her friends and her dogs engage in a shopping frenzy to the song I Want Candy by Bow Wow Wow. What major event inspires her to engage in some retail therapy? I'm locked in on the standard question. Locked in. Oh, geez. Oh, uh, locked in. All right. Very good. So, Roxanne, you said it last, so you means you have to go first. Um, okay, so the thing that happens is that somebody dies, and I can't remember who it is. 
Okay, thank you very much. Uh, and then KJ, <laughs> what do you have? All right, so just because I, I, I don't know. Just answer the question. <laughs> well, I want to I answer both questions. Is that all right? Tom, stab Go for it. Mm -hmm. All right, so... Um, <laughs> So the 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 alternate question, I, I think it's the birth of her nephew or niece that causes it, but I guess we'll find out. Um, so that morning she wakes up, there's there's a bunch of things she finds ridiculous. And I think Kirsten Dunst displays this through the looks on her face. I don't think she actually says anything. But the one that they play for the joke is um, she can't dress herself and the person of the highest rank has to be the one what dresses her. Uh, and they, they keep coming in one at a time and you know she just wants to get dressed and all these people keep coming in so then the other person has to dress her and bop, 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 bop. so the the dressing i have the same answer as kj she's trying to get dressed in the morning and she can't do it and the person with the the, the woman with the highest title in the room has to do it and every time they're about to do it someone with the higher title rank walks in the room and it's a whole thing all right, and that's points for Nick and KJ. Sorry, Raxan. Um, but what ins what inspires her retail therapy is the first bourbon prince of his generation is born to her brother-in-law and his wife. Yep. Yep, that's it, which sends her into tears. Um, <laughs> good, and yeah, and so that brings us at the, the end of this round here. Um, KJ with negative one, Roxanne with four, and Nick with five. Oh. So I, I, I love the, the I, like, I want candy section um, <laughs> of the movie. That, that's one of my favorite montages. And I think it's like the reason to watch this movie, or at least it's an example of the type of aspect of this movie that makes it worth watching. I thought that one worked. There were a few times she used a modern song and it, didn't work sometimes it came right before after they were playing a uh, an in-movie song like if they were at a ball and they were playing i don't know it's violins and cellos but um the i want candy one did work and man those macaroons right the macaroons were in that scene was it the macaroons yeah oh they looked i, I don't know why they look so good but they looked so good even though they were like pastel fluorescent almost they were like hyper hyper colorized but yeah that was a, a great scene yeah, I think the I think the color of the the candy itself is is part of that, right? You're supposed to be kind of awash in um, in softness. That's all I think when I look at those those great shoes. Also, that keep um, getting pulled out is this. They all look so soft. <laughs> you know, it's it like, makes you like want to participate in it like the entire time i'm like i want that and i'm like i'd never wear a wig or like have all those hair pieces that she has um even though i'm pretty sure i do have a marie antoinette wig somewhere in the basement um but it's like i want that even though i obviously don't want that um and i want to like i mean i, I do want like a mountain of champagne or whatever who doesn't um but it kind of really makes you want to just be part of it and revel in her um excess and joy and just sit there kind of longingly looking at um all oh, the calories um and how there are no consequences she's just gonna strap herself into a corset and you know and it's fine eat all the eat everything you want doesn't matter 
Going along with that scene, KJ was saying that this time it worked with the modern music. I, I would say that's true. A lot of the other times it did take me out of the, the movie, as I mentioned even in my intro. But one of the things I wanted to bring up about this sequence, and I'm not sure if you all caught it, but it stood out to me like a sore thumb. When she's going through the different high heels, there's a pair of purple, bluish, Converse-style sneakers, which are definitely not period-specific that are on display as she's trying shoes on. And I looked it up after the movie, of course, because I was like, did I just see a, 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 a pair of cons in, in this movie? And apparently Sofia Coppola put them there on purpose to show that she's this, you know, still like this modern teenager exploring and all that stuff. But those elements, I get it, but I don't necessarily like them in the film. Uh, but that's just my opinion. Is it the the modern elements you don't like, or the yeah fashion? that they just like? Well, usually it's the songs because sometimes I find they clash. The I on Candy song did actually work, but there's other sequences. I think KJ was saying that too. That just did not feel to fit the time frame or the time they, period. They of what made was it going look on. like cosplay sometimes, as if they were yeah. cosplaying to these modern songs. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. But the other thing is. This is supposed to be more of a period piece, and I understand what she was trying to do because I read it, and, so, and she literally explained it to me, the, the director. But yeah, it's it's it didn't seem to make sense to me that that bunch of Converse is uh, in this time period. I kind of love that play um, between different eras and kind of having this playfulness between two two eras. And I think that sometimes it comes off as a little bit heavy-handed and, and gimmicky. It's, it's Sometimes it's like a little bit too much of a get what I'm doing, wink, wink, don't you see it? Yeah. Um, but it also makes things feel very um, kind of fun. And it, it makes it really fun, even though that you know you've got this kind of revolution on the horizon and things are not good. Um, you've got this this feeling that you're just you're having a good time it reminds me of um Cher in Clueless um at the beginning of that movie I don't know if you guys have seen that movie um but she's like she she's kind of she also lives in this world of excess and she's like picking out her outfits from a computer program and it's like 1995 and you know but it's kind of got this 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 excess that's very playful and very modern but like like Clueless, that's also an adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma. And even though it takes place in the modern day, there are these kinds of play between the past and the present that kind of creates this sense of um, what even is time um, that I think is just fun, I think more than anything. And, and that was actually in the, the dress design as well. Uh, the person who designed it, Cananero, uh, uh, Melina, Melina Cananero, was she won an Oscar for the designs here. And the dresses aren't exactly 18th century authentic. The, like a lot of like that pink outfit she wears at one point, she has this, this pink dress. That is a sort of blend of kind of post-feminist, post-punk colors, you know, a, a, a aesthetic with an 18th century mix. So that kind of anachronistic play you're talking about, Roxanne, I think it isn't just in the, you know, in the soundtrack. It's, I mean, it's in the, the outfits themselves. They're not even, they're not, looking just for a kind of uh, a replication of the past in the costumes, but, um, you know, a, a ode to um, post-punk in, in the soundtrack, 
or you know or modern uh speaking styles right they they talk like modern women um, when they're they're all together and hanging out i think you're right i think the play that kind of joyful play between past and present is is actually deeply inside of this film and in the softness in the costumes and in the colors that are selected pink is far more prominent in this movie than it would have been in that time in france um i was just gonna say it's what it's in the it's in the casting too right when you have like when you cast rip torn as louis the 15th right like it's perfect and yet you're like what you know, and and so you have this play between this kind of ridiculous casting that all this that that's very deeply modern and deeply American, um, that that is also somehow perfect and really fun too, because you get to have the moment you're like Rip Torn, really okay, but great. I I don't mind the play of the different time periods, and there's many times in this movie where I thought they did it right, and again with the costumes and everything. I even in my initial thoughts. I think the actors did a wonderful job. Everything looked great. It's just, there's a difference between having play and throwing uh, a, a laced up sneaker in prominent direct and center on the screen. It, it kind of takes me out of what they're trying to do. Well, what do you think they're trying to do? Well, I know because she told me when I read about it that she was trying to show how she was kind of this, like still this uh, young, naive teenager and just like it would have been in, in modern times. So I, I get, but I think I already got that from everything else that was going on. I didn't need to see that sneaker. And I don't want to, I just thought it was an interesting part of the film. And it'd be different if they threw these little things along the way. The other ones were softer touches, as you said, cosmetic color choices, even the music, that's where they lose me a little bit. Um, but I think overall, it, I didn't buy into it throughout the whole film. So I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up, um, after the announcement of the young prince, um, Kirsten Dunst has a bit of a breakdown and she rushes back to her room and almost has a 360 closet scene without a closet. She 360s around these few walls in, in the corner of her room um, before the I want candy scene. And um, it reminded me a lot of Broken Blossoms. I, I didn't know if there was a, a direct reference there or not, but. You're looking for it now. <laughs> We're always looking for <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> just, there's got to be a reason for that closet scene. Putting it next to the, the I want candy montage really works well because it's like, it's, it's a beautiful trick. I don't want to say trap because it's not like she had a choice, right? It's not like she could have gone somewhere else, right? It's a structured world. She's receiving all this luxury and she is expected to do something in return. And watching her in that little moment kind of against the wall crying or moving in, you know, not in 360, but in 180, 75, uh, you know, I, th I think reveals that, that we're going to see her rewards and her privilege but the, the thing that nobody asked her if she wants to do, which is kind of bear the responsibility of the continuation of this ancient regime. Which also wasn't her fault either. It was, I, yeah, no, not at all. Yeah, it was, it was like seven years. And that was because like, they either didn't understand how sex worked or there were problems on his end. So I would imagine she felt like massively helpless as well. They explicitly said there weren't problems on his end. They had a doctor inspect him and all that, if you remember in some of the dialogue. So 
I guess he was intimidated. <laughs> I don't really know what the answer is. Based on, I mean, this is not in the movie, but from what I read, um, it's a little bit in the movie. Uh, Joseph II, her brother, um, the letter he sends to his mother is, I, I, I think it is a pretty good translation of the letters that he actually were sending, which are pretty detailed about what Louis actually thought sex was, um, <laughs> which involved... Uh, putting it in, standing there for two minutes, and then going to bed. <laughs> so apparently these people were not, they didn't know, you know, what to do. And she was like, you said, Roxanne, the 15th, I think of 16 children, who was expected to do oh nothing. Well, I will say talking about letters, the letters from the mother were amazing. <laughs> They're just like, did you do it yet? Are you gonna do it? <laughs> Why haven't you done it? <laughs> Did I get that right? Fifteen out of sixteen. It's many. It's 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 in mm. that zone. She yeah. was. It was. It was mm. too many. Yeah. Too many cooks <laughs> in that kitchen. <laughs> but uh, this is what you're saying, Nick. I you know I said this when watching it too. Was I think Maria Maria Teresa, her mother. I want to see her movie. That woman was. <laughs> that woman was a, a powerful woman in Europe at that time. Yes. And she was a good politician from what I've read. Well, Tom, that was a really interesting round. We'll be right back after these brief messages. Talking Pictures Trivia Theater presents a screaming lapel pin production. The Jane of My Youth, a coming-of-age story of young love, read by me, Tom. Chapter 5 the mad scientist. Michael looked through the secret door into a dusty room. This room was set up like the theater of a Victorian medical school. Large, curved brown benches were arranged in a series of elevated ellipses looking down on a long metal table, large enough to comfortably seat twelve people. Oil lamps illuminated the massive room. Standing at the head of the table, was Jane. Her strawberry blonde hair dangled over her shoulders. In her hands she held a small black welder. At the other end of the table stood a tall man with white hair. Michael couldn't see his face. It was covered with a black welder's mask. In the center of the table was what looked like a large superconducting magnet, a collection of metal discs stacked on top of one another, with a coil tightly wrapped around those discs. Jane was welding two ends of two wires together. The tall, white-haired man watched from across the table, unmoving. Behind them, on the back wall of the theater, a large electrical board more than twelve feet in height and covered in different colored lights and differently sized levers and buttons glowed. A rainbow of different colors vanished under the bright white sparks generated by the welding machine. Jane stopped and placed the welder down on the ground beside the table. The man removed his mask. He was clearly in his sixties, with wide blue eyes and a too thin face covered in wrinkled skin. It's complete, the voice crumpled leather. The machine is ready. All we need now is the cube. Jane's authority chilled Michael. 
I will get it now. The man turned and walked towards the back wall. He disappeared behind a door next to the complex machinery. Michael leaned forward and accidentally brushed against the door, causing it to squeak. He jumped back into the hallway, hoping no one heard him. Is someone there? Oh, God. Jane's voice. He held his breath, waiting. He could hear her shoes ascending the stone theater, her voice a questioning threat. Hello? Is someone there? Michael jumped up and grabbed his bag and was about to run when... Riley grabbed him by the shirt. Michael gasped. Hey, Jane, Riley called, grabbing Michael. I've got him. This has been a Talking Pictures Theater presentation of a Screaming Lapel Pin production. The Jane of My Youth. A coming-of-age story of young love. This week, Screaming Lapel Pins has on sale the allotrating Satanic Leaf-Tailed Gecko. one up wherever screaming lapel pins are sold and we're back tom take it away thank you nick all right our score so far is our caboose is kj with negative one followed by roxanne with four and nick since this is his favorite movie of all time is in the lead with five all right though nick i do think you need to thank kj for your massive lead Oh, definitely. He's the best player on my team. He is the best player on your team. Yeah, wait till round two, huh? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Each question is worth two points. Our alternative questions are worth three and four points. And so, as our esteemed guest, Roxanne, you are going to be able to start off with the categories. Um, And round two is uh, going to take place at uh, Le Petit Trianon. So we've moved to the country estate. Here are the categories. Grand Habit de Croix, Robe in Gaulle, and Berger Gown. Which dress would you like to try on? I would like to take uh, the first category that I can't remember what you said it was. Grand Habit de Croix. We. We. All right. Anybody like an alternative? I'm in. I'm in. I'm in for the alternative. And I got to target Nick again to get my, my, well, I'm going to try to get my points back, but. All right. Would Is you the like four or the three? Yeah. Which one would you like? Um, well, I come on. Just a three. I don't want to. Let's just do the three. <laughs> just the three. Okay. Yeah, just the three. And Nick, what would you like? Normal question. It's time for question four. So this is for Nick and Roxanne. What does Louis Auguste first say upon learning that his grandfather has died and he has become Louis XVI? For the alternative question, KJ targeting Nick, name Louis Auguste, later Louis XVI's favorite hobby. Locked in. <laughs> locked in. Lo- locked in. Ah. Locked in. 
I guess I'm locked in. Since Nick, you went last. What is what's the answer? He said that he is no longer the Dauphont. He is now the king. I think he says something along the lines of, and I won't dramatize it for you too much. Lord help us, we are too young to rule. So my question was about uh, Louis's favorite hobby. Um, mm-hmm. And the obvious answer is hunting, because it's a major point in the movie that he often goes hunting. But um, another critical point is when his brother-in-law explains to him how locks and keys work. And I think that's one of his favorite hobbies are, are, are locks and keys. Points are going to Roxanne, who will be getting two points. KJ, who's getting three points from Nick, which brings him... Did he target up. me? He just asked for the He targeted you. He targeted you. Stay on target. <laughs> yeah. No, did and you? Did you? Oh, yeah. You actually did, said yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, well, <laughs> I thought yeah, you picked yeah. another category. <laughs> yeah. There was, there was a lot of category confusion, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Nick with uh, did not get any points for that round. What do we think of Hold Jason? on, I don't even know where I'm at right now. Okay, so point recap. Uh, KJ won this round, getting, stealing three points from you, okay, which brings his total up two. to two. And then I'm at two. You are at two, and Roxanne is now in the lead with six. Good job, KJ. Okay. It's Way to be a disruptor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> good, good work all. I'm kind of interested in... Was a really interesting choice is Jason Schwartzman's uh, Louis the Sixteenth and how he's portrayed and how he's um, he's treated, you know, by the by the director throughout this film. Um, and I was wondering what you guys thought of him. I'll just say it. I thought he was really good. I thought he did a great job. I thought it was Jason Schwartzman as Jason Schwartzman, um, which I also really like because he he plays himself in 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 everything. Um, but it's just this kind of, um, earnest, quiet, awkward, plain, soft smoke spoken dude, um, that I just kind of, it's good. I like Jason Schwartzman. It, it worked as part of the modern era invading the timepiece, um, but I, I don't think he was ever in time. I think he was always a converse shoe in this movie yeah i like i i like that and i would say even with my strong opinions towards the sneaker i think he was a successful play with the modern so i i do agree with you there just this is not a serious item but there was just to give you a, a little bit of his image in the movie there's a scene where he's about to go off on a hunt and he gets on the horse and he just has this really awkward wave with like a little flourish. Like it doesn't make sense for the time. It's like, bye-bye. <laughs> like it just didn't make sense to me. But for some reason it was a very uh, subtle thing and I, I enjoyed it. So he, his awkward wave goodbye to the queen when he goes off to a hunt uh, is kind of an example of how he portrays this role. Yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, take on, you know, showing this, this very awkward form of masculinity that is kind of a problem for the court um and it's it's almost like you can kind of see this as like oh this isn't going to be this the the image of france 
that we need. It's not even that they're they're too young to rule. It's that um, that there there's something that is inherently, you know, not right. I mean, obviously, I'm not I'm not saying that 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 it, that's what I I believe. But like you know, there's you know, there's this kind of um, the awkwardness of his masculinity kind of makes you think like like smell that there's something not right about this particular um monarchy especially in in uh relationship to the previous king um there's such a stark difference there between rip torn and jason schwartzman right like that is some cool casting in that way yeah the, france needed a king and they got a guest star on friends <laughs> <laughs> which allowed Kirsten Dunst to shine or, or, or Marie Antoinette to shine. Um, but yeah, it, it, it did not work out well for, for France. I think it also reveals the, the, like you're saying, Roxanne, sort of the flaws in the system, right? You, you get this guy who's, who's um, like you're saying, his masculinity isn't, isn't mocked, nor is he, nor is right. it uh, like, nor does it compromise her femininity. Right, it's not like um, he's really domineering or controlling. Like he said, we're too young to rule, um, and he, and he also is the wrong person to rule. Like you're saying, you know, he isn't virile. He isn't uh, domineering. He does kind of what the loudest person in the room does when he has those little councils about whether to, whether or not to fund America, which really becomes a problem at the end of the movie because they don't have any money left because they funded us. Thank you. Um, yeah, but, thanks for ruining yourselves and going into a lot of debt for mm -hmm. us. Yeah, it worked out well. <laughs> Isn't that the uh, American way? <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I, yeah, I, and I, I really had that kind of appreciation because I think through him, uh, it's more clear that this is a system that that can't persist. That it's a it's a beautiful dream that's going to come to an end. Um, He's also a product of generations of that system. He's molded and weakened by these different social graces and protocols and all that that he grew up in. And yes, the fact that he got into that level of power at such a young age. I mean, he can't even figure out what to do with his wife, let alone a country. Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of interesting that um, so by the time we get to Louis the Sixteenth, um, the the main monarch to bring Versailles and all of its rules and regulations and this and that, making Versailles what it was, was Louis the Fourteenth, um, which was two monarchs previous, but several generations removed. Because there's like, not it keeps going like you know, grandson or whatever. Um, so there's been like generations of kind of living in this very. Um, enclosed way of living in society that kind of creates kings that aren't actually attuned to um and anything going on um and are are just you know like marie herself right she's kind of just out of touch um it's a similar thing that's happening with him you know he's grown in inside of a bubble his entire life he's jake gyllenhaal in that one movie bubble boy i believe um but in versailles instead and this movie purposely keeps us, the audience, in that same bubble. I think 
very rarely or very infrequently, we actually see the plights of the peasantry and all that. And even what Tom was saying in an earlier discussion, we only hear, for the most part, we only hear the challenges outside. There is a scene where Marie Antoinette does go on the balcony and sees everyone, but very rarely do we see it in this film. Um, so now I'm going to ask KJ to pick the category. Robe in gall or budget uh, gown? I'll go robe in gall. All right. Anybody want an alternative to that? <laughs> can I? KJ I'm can still kind of confused. Can I? Am I can, you can choose the alternative. I can, right? For that. You can. Okay. You're, anyone is free to okay. choose the alternative. There was, There's yeah. one left worth four points, or you can choose a target. I'm Pat Gavining this. I, I don't want these. To, these are good questions. I will go four, and I'm going to be consistent. <laughs> I'm going to target Nick. <laughs> you don't want to target Roxanne. Roxanne is the strategy. She's got six points. <laughs> I see what you're saying. Um, I don't know what's happening, so I'm just having a good time. Yeah, but mm-hmm. so I'll just. For the audience, some quick math. So if I target Nick, Nick or I mm-hmm. will get the four points. Yes. If I target Roxanne, this could boost her to, um, you know, Final Jeopardy supremacy. Mm-hmm. So I think. Oh, I see. So, Strategy. So I'm going to target. Okay, Nick. very good. All right. So anybody else want to jump on the alternative? This is the last alternative of the game. So talking strategy. If I wanted to be vindictive <laughs> and target back, it really wouldn't make any sense unless, well, that could be a really big swing, actually. Yeah. On one how. of us get it and one of us don't. That's an eight <laughs> point. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go, I'm gonna go uh, slow and steady wins the race here. Just standard question for me and hopefully KJ's points. Okay. And Roxanne, what would you like to do? I think I'll just take the old standy. <laughs> okay. All right, since we have two people taking the standee. Um, <laughs> I'm taking standard question. Thank you very much. Yep, standard question. <laughs> I will read that first, then I'll read KJ's question. It's time for question five. After having her daughter, Maria Therese, Maria Antoinette receives Le Petit Trianon as a gift and begins to spend much of her time playing peasant in the country. What author do we see her reading in this country estate? Now, KJ, your target at Nick. What line of dialogue is stated in a scene filmed inside the imagination of a rumor? Cha-ching! Oh, I guess I have to say locked in. Did I say that or not? Locked in. I think I know the rumor, but I'm trying to think. All right, locked in. All right, KJ. I have to make you do it. Four points. Four points. Um, so, unfortunately for me, fortunately for Nick, I don't know the answer, but I'd like to quote Flight of the Concord. <laughs> okay. Alufafa. Alufafa. Fa, fa, fa. I believe was the line of dialogue. Okay. Thank you. That That is very endearing. Roxanne, what do you have for your answer? Can I answer KJ's question? You can. It's let them eat cake, right? It is. Yep. Oh, Get yeah. out of here. Yep. Right? <laughs> yeah. All I had to say All was right. the only thing Marie Antoinette is known for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the the actual the answer is simple. It's the question is phrased in a way to make you think through it. Wow. Um, <laughs> um for my own question, mm-hmm. um I don't know, so I'm gonna pick um 
Moliere. Okay. And Nick, what do you have? Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes. <laughs> oh, yes. Don Quixote is the answer to a book in every single episode. <laughs> okay. So, so I get um, the points? No. So, but you do get four points from KJ. All right. So that puts you up at six. KJ, you, you had two points, and now you're down to negative two. Um, and then Roxanne, you are still at six because you didn't get that answer. Um, so now, what is it? What's the, the answer, answer is Rousseau. That was my second guess. She's reading. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> For our, our listeners, Roxanne just gave me a death stare. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, she's reading Rousseau, and so the points after the fifth question are Roxanne and Nick are tied at six, and Kevin, you're not catching up. You're at negative two. I still got a chance at being at zero, though. Let's make that clear. You do have a chance at being at zero. We could, good both, man. Tar we could both target KJ. No, there's no you can, yeah. left, right? There's no alternative. There's no alternative, there's no alternative yeah. Oh, oh sorry, KJ. I was going to target you, but... Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'm asked this question especially about uh, the Rousseau one, and then we'll go into the, the let me cake thing. The I, I'm interested in kind of the, the pastoral scenes and the kind of the the constructing of the pastoral as um, as something that she considers natural, returning to natural, but is entirely made up, you know, by her and her gardener. And I was wondering what people thought of that and how that uh, fictitious construction was treated in this film. It reminded me of when I, what I wish that I would have had when I was a kid, when I was like playing house and like doing, it's like, all right, we're gonna get all this fake food and it's going to be amazing. And okay, you over there, you're gonna pretend to do that. And it, it, it's, like, it's like a six-year-old's dream. Um, and it kind of, um, I think, you know, she's supposed to be a grown woman with kids at this point, right? And, and we know that she isn't a child, right? Like she's not childish. Um, exactly, but she is a little childish, right? She she has no exposure to anything, and and her greatest dream is to, um, or her 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 best way of imagining peace is to go out and basically like pay people to help her play house, um, and like have people like be like actors like pretending to be farmers and like milking you know cows or whatever, which sounds great to you know what i was doing in in ohio when i was six um and honestly it kind of sounds fun now but i think that that's that's just called um reenactment she actually like a little kid putting on plays and performances for her friends she actually does have little shows that she puts on for her guests in that too so that seems to be in that type of bubble there is one scene and i don't know if if this jumped out at, at any of you that she's in her home away from home. So here she is, she's listening to music and there's like three gentlemen sitting around. It was just like an awkward scene. I, I don't know what the purpose of that scene was. Does anyone recall what I'm talking about? Yeah, they're playing guitar. Yes. Or right, they're playing guitar, guitar or lutes or, or something, mm -hmm. yeah. But it just was like, it, talk about surreal. It just seemed- It was, yeah. it was like, anyway, here's Wonderwall. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> It just was kind of out there. Yeah, a, a lot of that. I, so I, I think 
Well, I don't know what to say about the, the brief loot scene. Um, <laughs> Nor I, did I. I. Mean, yeah, it's, <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, she goes outside after that, so maybe she also was tired of stuffy loot music <laughs> in a big hallway. Um, but while, well, with Roxanne, what you said about this is the, um, that this is like playing house and paying people to play house, I, I think the movie still uh, respects that instinct or that desire in her. That there's still this kind of little, because when we, we have this kind of montage of her um, with her daughter walking in the, in the tall grass and, you know, teaching her daughter, like, blue, this is blue, um, which the little girl says in French, uh, you, you know. And, and also, Nick, you had mentioned this earlier when, they, when the guests come to visit and they're very upset and she goes, you know, this is supposed to be my place away from all of this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I think that the movie is in no way judging her for the the reality that we're still in a bubble. That this is that the pastoral is an idyllic playtime event construction reality. Um, I still think it recognizes that it serves this this need that she has throughout the movie. Either that need is expressed in this an exuberance and the too muchness of of fashion and style and the and art or it's expressed in this hope for something simpler right it's almost like she's maybe not exactly flailing for for something to hold on to while she's drowning i don't think it's that dramatic but it is uh it is turning about to look for something that is freeing and i think this is kind of another way that she does that and it's also, if, if you think about like the beginning of the movie too, um, when she's with her mom and her mom's like, hey, you're marrying the Dauphin, bye. Um, she's never had anything like that. So it's not like, it's like, I'm going to go back to basics. It's a, I'm going to create something of my own that belongs to me, even if like these are kind of elements that I'm grasping from everywhere. Um, this is going to be like my little private um extension of myself that is something that she's never she's never had before she's never had this kind of any kind of pastoral idyllic um you know home space at all she's had she's been one of the youngest kids of a bazillion of them and she's grown up at court um with all sorts of of people who we don't see but the, the point is is that like she's um creating something that it also seems to belong to her as well for the first time. Yeah, and it's it's interesting it happens after she gives birth to a child. So after she's able to um quell the the kind of rumor of her frigidity or or that the fact that she's not doing her duty, we now have evidence she is doing her duty and with that power she's able to grab something that is now hers. Right? She, you know, it, it, that seems to be what I think Coppola is indicating regardless of that's if, if that's actually how it happened. And, and she's able to give her kids a, a childhood that she probably dreamed about as well, right? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, you see like all the different kinds of, um, uh, who was it who brought up the um, her daughter in the grass and these kinds of scenes that are just very mellow. Um, and it's like you're watching some kind of like spa relaxation video. Um, but it, it does seem to be like, a giving her kids something that she she would have liked and it's also an interesting contrast to what you know is going to come to 
um, that, you know, her son, I believe, dies in prison. The daughter escapes, but, like, this is going to be the nicest and happiest time in their life. So when you think of it that way, too, it's super dark. And I, I also wanted to touch on, with, with the alternative question, the picturing of her that is is created kind of by history. And in this film, it's it's also created by the the rabbling middle class who want to, to kill her. We get, I think, two instances of the the rumor created Marie Antoinette, the Marie Antoinette we think we know. Uh, at the beginning, the, the first shot is of her kind of sitting in a, in a, 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 a chaise, having, I think, a shoe adjusted, and then eating a little bit of ice icing. And then the other one is in that that scene where she says, "Let them eat cake," which is filmed as this, you know, kind of surreal little rumor. Uh, and I think both those scenes present the Marie Antoinette you think you know. It's it's that type of thing. Um, it's the the person of luxury who isn't entire. That's not entirely inaccurate, but the movie very much addresses the Marie Antoinette as a construct. Um, and I was wondering what people thought of that. Well, I guess you you kind of get that. Um if you you think about it in terms of the the way that we're talking about the past and and present playing with each other too the the film is really willing to um mix legend and history um and rumors um into this kind of cobbled together not cobbled together because that sounds like it's you know not done thoughtfully but a pastiche i suppose of um that that you get embodied in in Kirsten Dunst um and sometimes it feels very discombobulating because sometimes it uh especially like when she speaks um the dialogue in in my mind I didn't love um and I think that that kind of disparity comes um this kind of and it's not just the modern dialogue too it's the kind of who is Marie Antoinette supposed to be? So when she finally kind of says something, you're not really sure from where it's coming. Um, what Marie is speaking now? Um, are we? Are is she? Is this just the woman? Is this part of the legend? Is this part of, you know, who's talking right now? I guess sometimes it's clearer than others too. They they sometimes they can make it pretty clear who's talking, but sometimes you it's it's a lot, and maybe it's intentionally. Um, ambiguous too to kind of um, lead us through that um, that question of like who is Marie Antoinette? Yeah, I, I agree. I think the the book scenes where you have this kind of scripted dialogue as opposed to when they're partying, which seems kind of improv. Seems like what they're speaking when they're in these different parties. It seems like that a lot of that dialogue seems Im improvised. Um, the book scenes seem stilted. Right. The, the book seems just they don't seem like this is things real people say. Um, and, and you're right. It, it's she seems less the character she's playing in those scenes. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I think it's just because the movie is so much about the the beauty of fashion and and embracing that kind of attitude um, and celebrating it. You know, it's about that kind of celebration. And the book scenes, you know, that come towards the end are really, 
you know, about kind of maybe closing off this chapter or whatnot. I mean, they're functional and that's kind of the problem. This isn't a movie about, um, about a, a functioning plot line that moves us from A to B to C. It's about this kind of celebration. It's about decadence. It's about going to the party and seeing how people act at the party and flirt and what they wear. You know, it's like pretending that the Oscars have a plot, you know? <laughs> that's, I think that's the, the, the problem. Um, and I think the, how, how much love Coppola has for the clothes and the shoes for me came out in those, in that, um, in that moment when she says, let them eat cake, the kind of the fake scene when she says, let them eat cake, because it isn't Marie Antoinette, right? It's this ugly thing that doesn't care about people. And it's not that Marie Antoinette has a great consciousness or something like that. She's simply just not aware. Um, but her decadence is, while something that has to expire, it is also something that is to be admired, not to be mocked or, or degraded. I think what you just articulated showcases my challenges with this film. I don't think it's a bad film, but all the time it took to showcase that and build it up. And that's the part where I actually enjoyed more of the historical context and all that. So that to me, I think this movie wasn't designed for me as an audience. And I, you know, just, it was funny to hear you say that because everything you were saying of what was probably clearly intended was the challenges I had with the film. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, not a movie about, you know, the plot of history or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's not a movie about plot, right? It's, it's, I'm a sucker for a little plot. What yeah, I, I mean, there's a little plot in there. But really, well, yeah, it's the most frustrating thing for me, too. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this isn't doing anything. And, like, I, I love the dresses, and I love the hair, and I love the shoes, but sometimes I'm just like, okay. Yeah. At least I wasn't alone. Yeah. I, I like too muchness, I think. That, that's my, I like the quality of something being too much, um, even if it can, you know, exhaust you a little bit. I had too much of too much. Yeah, too much of too much. Right. The uh, the montage, you know, where it's like the, the food and the, you know, the, the clothes and that thing with the, the shoes and everything. I was like, oh, almost plot. We <laughs> kind of know what's happening. It's the plot of the montage for once. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, 40 seconds of of non-plot plot bliss <laughs> you know th this movie might have done better in another era on tnt it's one of those movies you can jump in and out of any scene because the lack of plot and and the eye candy so i wonder if you know something like uh shawshank redemption if this would have done well on sunday afternoons <laughs> on a on a network station or something I like that we've 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 compared this to Shawshank. <laughs> That's no, I no, think no, the no. most beautiful. We have so not. Far. KJ has. Well, I'm with you. <laughs> okay. Yes. This is the Shawshank Redemption of period yeah. films. <laughs> this is this is really the Shawshank Redemption of the 2000s. <laughs> so correct me if I'm wrong. There's still one question. For a second, I thought we were. In no, movie we here. have the last question. <laughs> And it's the tiebreaker um, because it looks to me that Roxanne and Nick both have six points. And that makes this last question very, very interesting because not only is it going to be the tiebreaker, but it is subjective. Are we ready for this last question? Belger Gown is the name of the category. It's time for 
question six. The picture ends with Marie Antoinette saying goodbye to Versailles as the revolutionaries take her and her family away to be executed, closing the door temporarily on hundreds of years of Bourbon rule and permanently ending a way of life. In your opinion, does this world have to end? You may use historical evidence if you like, but your answer must be in regard to what you feel the film is saying. Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. This movie says that this world does have to end. The, the nation of France simply cannot afford the war, the lifestyle, the monarchy, the excess. Everything in this movie um, comes down to the one scene or maybe two scenes where uh, Louis is with his uh, consultants and they're telling him, hey, we got to send money to America. And he says, sure, whatever you say. Um, and it, it's that spending of the money that does not allow the uh, aristocrats to, to perpetuate forever. I think that this movie is stating that this world has already ended and this is the last remnants of it in this bubble of Versailles. So France has changed. Everything around them has changed. There's a revolution happening in the Americas. Everyone is moving on from the monarchies and aristocracy and Versailles is finally being affected by this. So I would say that it's already happened. And even the way this movie ends, which is what I've been biting my tongue on this whole time, we know from historical context what happens to uh, the king and queen, but this movie does not take us there. All we see in this movie is that they are escorted in a carriage away from Versailles. Only in real life do we know their brutal end happened at the edge of a guillotine. So I would say this movie is not really focused on the ending because it already has ended and they're just getting caught up. So I think that's a really good point. Um, I would say that it's not necessarily that it already has ended, um, but I think that the movie definitely thinks that it, it has to end and is in the process of ending like it's kind of like the dominoes have already been um pushed as it were um it's happening it's imminent it's coming um but what i think that the film is more invested in i think than anything is is mourning that and not necessarily may, maybe mourning the uh, what you could maybe probably definitely see as exploitation of other people in order to kind of um perpetuate their lifestyle, but um, mourning the freedom within that, that bubble, the being able to be detached, being able to exist outside and alone, and, and just that, that excess, it's not going to come back, right? And they, when they, what I think is really telling is that one of those last scenes where they kind of, um, the, it's just the, the bedroom, uh, that's completely like destroyed. Um, it's very mournful, right? Look at what this glory used to be and here it is in shambles. Um, so it's, a, it's very much, I think, invested in the memory of it. And even though that it can't come back and it won't, it, it's literally broken. Um, 
that it's important to kind of remember and some in some ways maybe bring it back and feel it again which is exactly what the movie is trying to do right is bring all those images back again and have us experience those same kind of like feelings of luxury and just enjoyment and excess all right and the points go to of course roxanne <laughs> <laughs> Son of a <laughs> I didn't talk long enough. Exactly it. I counted the words everyone said. Um, I'm much more concise. That was one word. It was mourn. One word, yeah, though. mourn. Right. That, yeah, that I, I think the that the the mm -hmm. ending. Uh, I think yeah, mourning is is a great way. That's what I wrote everybody's answers down, uh, or kind of uh, as quickly as I could. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah we don't have enough time to free okay, read I won't. yeah but i think that that idea of uh, of mourning it was kind of like mourning versus post-apocalyptic right we're just kind of mixing the world is over and we're kind of dancing in the ashes no i'm saying their world is over yeah there's a new world yeah their world is over and they're the the it's post-apocalyptic for their world um you know, and, and they've been dancing in, in the ashes. And I think that, you know, the last scene is, is yeah, in, in mourning for this world, even though it does have to end. Um, and I think that is, that is correct. And I was wondering what people thought of that last scene. Well, that's what I've been yeah, no, to Nick's been dying pretty much this whole time. <laughs> if you didn't have historical context, it almost looks like they just were escorted out of their house. Are they going to jail? What's going to happen to them? Oh, they're no longer in power. We all know that they get executed and the movie glosses over that fact. That's not the, and I understand that's not the point of the movie, but that's also my challenge with the movie. Even if we do modern elements, if these are based on historical characters and these are the pivotal points of, of their, their demise and the end of the story, I felt uh, like it should have been somewhat included. I think though that it kind of wants to, to not linger in that. It wants to be like, remember how cool this was? Remember how awesome this party was? Like, instead of like, remember how the cops were called and then we all got ticketed. I think it's like trying to live in like the party rather than like everybody getting a record. I agree with you. That is what the director was trying to show. Yeah, I, I agree. But I, I'm also kind of there with you, Nick. I was waiting for that, that scene. It would kind of be like seeing a Titanic movie that ended with oh everybody's still having a good time that's it's sailing to the true. sunset and roll credits yeah but they're, they're not sailing to the sunset we don't the, know where they're right? going, they're going they just got escorted up yeah, you can't be in your house anymore i mean if you're going to see a movie called marie antoinette you probably know a little something about what happens to marie antoinette right the the, the director can assume some knowledge on your part it's like going to see a movie about lincoln yeah but i'll know. tell you just, God, I'll how? tell you this. I knew a little bit about this. Mm -hmm. When the movie ended mm -hmm. and that was the end sequence, I went online to figure out what exactly happened because I know roughly, but I would expect the movie about like that character to kind of wrap up in the conclusion. So he was killed first and some time had passed and then she was killed. But like none of that, I didn't know that. But it's, it's not about 
I mean, I'm not arguing that wasn't the can, intent of the movie. Yeah, it, I'm saying it, that's the so movie even I if wanted you don't know, to see. <laughs> yeah, but even if you don't know she dies, you know it's over. Yeah, right. We know. I mean, the the tone makes that clear. This is over. We're done. And she says, "I'm saying goodbye." It's the last line. And then Roxanne, as you pointed out, the last shot is of Versailles broken. Right, the, the door off the hinge, the, the chandelier down. This world is over. This is a graveyard now. Um, so even if we don't know exactly when she died or if she, she's dead, the, yeah, the part she played is, is done with. And I think the movie, um, like you're saying, Roxanne, the movie doesn't want to dwell in despair. Um, I, I think it's clear that this world has to end because... They're getting into debt. There are people who are starving because they're being taxed to pay for a war that will make the British look bad. That's their justification for, for why they're they're adding these taxes to these these poor Even people. The um, Let's go into debt. Yeah, to the Brits. yeah, we <laughs> Yeah, it's all about owning the Brits. She's, you know, um, like at one point she's she's declared what queen of debt. Is yeah, that what they? Like that. I think that is something. Something like that. Yeah. Um, which was a little awkward. They posted on the picture, but anyway. Um, but I think if you show the the bloody consequences, what you're doing is um, is in a sort of way compromising or judging the beauty of the world from which she comes. Um, not that it doesn't deserve a little judgment, but that's not what's happening here. I don't think. I think in this world, we are going to afford Marie Antoinette, a person who really doesn't have a voice, though she does have a tremendous amount of privilege. We're going to afford her her world and we're going to appreciate her world and the challenges that her world afforded her um, and, the, and the beauties of it, the great beauties of it. I mean, to say that fashion is frivolity is stupid. It's, it's art. It, it's, um, you know, it's maybe one of the best arts because you could like feel it and wear it and be contained in it, um, you know, and recognize that the, that the privileges of this world are, um, are also quite, they, they're quite beautiful, I guess. And it's, you know, it's a moment to enjoy that. Well, Tom, this was another good movie. Uh, again, there was a lot of rich conversation here, and I'm sure we have a few more nuggets of wisdom to go over uh, right after these quick messages. It's time for Guess That Song, Whistling Edition. I'll whistle a song, and you guess what it is. Here we go.
If you guessed Man, I Feel Like a Woman by Shania Twain, you're right. And we're back. It's time for Movie Rant. One of the things I thought this movie did really well was made Kirsten Dunst look like a foreigner in France. Everybody kind of looked the same. I mean, they were all... Um, but for some reason, she always looked different than everybody else. And the only thing I could think of was the makeup. I think her makeup was done to a, to a much lesser degree than the, the French. Um, so she stood out without calling attention to that. And I, I thought that was a really, was really nicely done. I'm sure someone can pick holes at what I'm about to say, but I'm pretty sure a lot of the other lead females were brunettes and had darker hair. And yeah, I think she, point. she was blonde. Yeah. I think that's also why, and she was fair. And I think that's another element of why she seemed foreign in the group. Yeah, I think you're right. I can't think of any other blonde yeah, woman in that movie. The daughter was the only okay, one yeah, I can yeah. think of, but that is <laughs> again her daughter. Her daughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's 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 yeah, that's a good point. She is like she physically is kind mm-hmm. of different from. They didn't from make, and I'm sure uh, that's on purpose. They didn't even make the Swedish guy, um, uh, uh, Jamie Dorden's character, who's supposed to be Swedish. I'm not Burnett. all Swedes yeah, are are, yeah. are blonde. I mean, I'm very Norwegian and I'm <laughs> very dark, but like, you know, you would think that would be the opportunity, especially because they have an affair, right? Like to kind of show like likeness in looks, but they didn't really take that opportunity as much as you might think. Maybe they're like, well, Jamie Dornan, you know what? <laughs> he's, he's bangable. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was a stylistic choice. I think that was a stylistic choice. Yeah, what what did you think of her performance, Christine Dunst or, or anyone's? I think she I think in general the cast across the board did a great job. That's why when I mm-hmm. have my critiques, it's it's not really about what how do I put it? It's not critiquing that this is a bad movie, it's just not my movie. It's not your cup of tea. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I was looking for a historic and we even said these phrases before, historical biopic. I actually don't necessarily think it was it was more about this idea centered around marie antoinette not necessarily her life story and i know that's kind of weird to say because we go through some of her life but that wasn't really the focus it was the excess it was the decadence it was the lifestyle it was the generation it was that you know that's really what they focused on not so much the historical facts and figures yeah there was a lot of that as we discussed in this episode um, I think if there was a plot, I think if there was another thing to watch during this movie, it might have been too much. I think the lack of plot allowed the audience to sit with the colors and the dresses and the the excess. I, I, I think that was a, a good thing for the movie. I think it would have been too much if there was much more in this movie. If you're into that. <laughs> and I also kind of like how it lets you, um, a lot of the scenes are with Marie, I think almost every scene, like she's in it in some capacity. Um, It's not like ever usually from another. I mean, there are a couple, I think there's one with a couple with the Dauphin by himself and that kind of thing. But more or less, you're getting this kind of from the same space as Marie Antoinette. And a lot of times it's when she's with um, like her girlfriends. Um, And it, it allows you sort of to sit in with that group of girlfriends and be part of the 
the chatter and the gossip. Um, but then obviously it has you like those, the, the, the moments that are like behind, literally behind closed doors when she's like sobbing because, you know, everybody hates her because she doesn't, she hasn't had a kid yet. Um, but it lets you kind of be close to her or within her, her social group as well. You're, you get to experience a little bit of the clickiness uh, that, that might have been going on in her life. Also, I love the wigs in this movie. I know that's not related, but like the hair situation, the wig. Powder too. A lot of powder. Yeah. Powder, even if they didn't have a wig, it seemed like their hair was powdered. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the wig where they have to, where they, she has to stand up into the shot yeah, because yeah, her yeah. hair is so big that they have the camera set and she stands up and the, and the, the wig goes into the shot <laughs> and out of the shot because this is so large. And it also looks like it's about <laughs> to like, like fall out. Like the pieces of like yeah, horse it's, hair it's, that are supposed to be in there, it's like that's yeah, gonna fall off. Yeah. Put some glue it, glue it. <laughs> it's not too much. <laughs> she says, <laughs> "Yeah." So yeah, I, I think that's a great point. The kind of sitting in on the, the like uh, sitting in on the click and seeing how the click evolves. Um, and they were individualized too. I think like Roseburn and then Roseburn's character and then um, uh, Nye's character Bambel. as well. Yeah, the yeah. Princess Lambeau were distinct personalities that um, that even though they don't necessarily have a plot arc, they, they don't have a plot arc at all. You know, we we still had a very nice and clear vision of who these they, people were. They felt were. sometimes like they were um, different sides of Marie Antoinette, like kind of like the angel and devil <laughs> on her shoulders, mm-hmm. like kind of like telling mm-hmm. her to do different things. It's like, oh my, and like, who is she going to listen to? Which little kind of minion on mm-hmm. each shoulder is she going to <laughs> take, you know, advice from? Uh, but that's kind of, I, I guess, what it felt like to me. Also, another thing I was interested in is like this idea of pageantry, which you get in a few different ways. Um, is, uh, you know, it, it, it manifests in, first of all, in like the Catholic rituals we get, the, the wedding and the, the daily attention to mass. Um, also the, you know, the crowning of the king and that, that great scene where they're walking in that, that blue carpet with the fleur de lis over it as he's just been crowned Louis the Sixteenth, um, And also the, the kind of the pageantry of even the theater and, and kind of the customs of the theater. I, found that very interesting. And I found a quote from, I'll just read this quickly, a quote from uh, Stephanie Zarakayak, who's a, a film reviewer, who I really love, whose work I haven't read in a long time, but this is what she wrote about the movie for Salon. And I was wondering what people thought. Quote, but there's another possible explanation for Coppola's attraction to beauty and splendor, as we see it in Marie Antoinette. Maybe it stems less from a girly love of glamour than a Catholic taste for pageantry and excess, a taste that her father and her fellow Italian-American filmmaker contemporaries Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma have shown in their movies. The lush draperies and ornaments of Versailles are baldly ecclesiastical, perfectly fitting for rulers who were supposed to be guided by God. Why wouldn't Coppola be attracted to that setting? I was wondering what people thought of that, because that, that, she wrote a lot in that review, um, which I, I love that review, but that quote, that paragraph really jumped out at me. I was wondering if people thought that was too much or if, um, or if that suits the kind of the, the pageantry of the film. When I think of Catholicism, I, I often think of pretty strict rules. And um, I mean, some of the music's good, but I'm going to use a word boring. It, it's very structured. It's, um, you know, if somebody like 
puts any inflection on their voice. Everybody looks up and is like, oh, wow, thank you. That was great. That That's so much. Well, I don't want to get too into it. But um, and in this movie, there's there's a, there's a lot of using the modern. I know we said this a lot, but there's a lot of using uh, modern music. There's a lot of upbeat. So the, the pageantry to me did not feel Catholic. But while Sophia uh, Coppola was sitting in mass, maybe she was dreaming of this movie to to give her something to think about while um you know I don't, I don't know if anybody listening has been to mass but um there's a lot of time to think sometimes in mass and so so maybe it's a reaction to that uh, catholic pageantry but i don't think the pageantry in the movie was similar to catholicism i don't think her point is that it's a, like a catholic pageantry i think it's the idea of the um the excessive decor that comes along with the pageantry in those specific rituals. Um, I think that's that, that kind of idea, this, this sort of guided by God beauty. And it's also an absolute monarch, right? Louis XVI is an absolute monarch, which means he is appointed by God to rule France. Um, and I think the, it, it, I think Zarek Hayek's point is that the, the, the fashion, the gilding, the rooms, the, the furniture, um, is, is all sort of informed by, you know, the kind of this, this greater glory or it's got a, this greater, this greater point or greater mission that, that the absolute monarch is, is going towards, or this greater authority that the absolute monarch is taking from. And I was wondering if there, if that registered in any other way in the movie. And we will now be presenting the Chuck Taylors of, <laughs> that were appointed to the feet of God. So no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there were scenes with religious undertones and the fact that they have procedures and protocols and all that. I, what I would say, I don't know if I directly relate to that um, article or that excerpt from that article, but I will say that she definitely had a love affair with the decadence and everything that came along with it through that time. But you could definitely see she was passionate about all of that. And I think for me that overtook the movie, but that definitely, there was passion for that lifestyle, this, this fantasy lifestyle, if you will, even though it is based on historical context. I think though too, for all the, the pageantry and all this divinely given or, or deserved pageantries, right? There's a lot of irreverence um in the movie like like the chuck taylors um featured in there and a lot of the kind of like sidelong looks and like the kind of you know winks that are continually going on throughout the movie so it's also undercutting it while it's also celebrating it which doesn't seem really to jive with maybe it completely with with what um with what that critic is saying i can't remember uh their name yeah, this is Stephanie Zarek-Dyke, but yeah. yeah, okay. Well, this definitely was another fun one to discuss, Tom. I'd like to once again congratulate Roxanne for winning this week. All right. Thank you. And thank you. What I will say is we no, we really appreciate you joining us today. It was a blast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I had a great time. This was this was wonderful. I I've really been looking forward to doing this with you guys. Would you have said the same thing if you didn't win this episode? You know what? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs>
<laughs> Sounds good. Well, I'd also like to thank our dignified editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. I'd also like to acknowledge IMDB, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss Nick's recommendation, which is my recommendation, from 1988, Coming to America. Not to be confused with the upcoming sequel, Coming to America. Should be a fun one. Haven't seen this in a while, and I'm looking forward to it, so I hope you are too. See you then. Ding, 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 ding. Roxanne is quite familiar with Jane Austen and her works, but we are discussing Mary Antoinette. Marie Antoinette today. I made the mistake when we introduced it last time. Every time I'm talking to Rachel, she's like, it's not Mary, it's Marie. Like now you've, you've infected the rest of us with that name. I don't even know where I got it from. Is any of that salvageable or do I have to reread that? I would, if you don't mind, just uh, try maybe... it again. Yeah, Roxanne oh, you do. is, Roxanne is quite do, familiar. Yeah, yeah. Roxanne is quite familiar with Jane Austen and her works, but we are discussing Mary Antoinette today. I did it again. <laughs> I did it again. Now it's like a mental block. <laughs> it's going to be a rough podcast. Okay, let's try this one more time. <laughs>